Word. We'll continue forward in Acts chapter 16. The title of today's sermon is The Kingdom Which Cannot Be Shaken. I will read from verse 11 through until verse 40 of chapter 16. Please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Therefore, sailing, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul, and when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened, as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into the house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officer, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so the team is still at Philippi. They've been there and had gradual success. They've seen a great demon cast out. They've seen the economic 
forces of the community turned upside down by the gospel. They have seen Lydia and her household transformed. And they've been faithful in their mission. But now they're suffering. I hope that you'll remember this text as we're going through today's passage written by Paul to the church at Philippi about nine years after this event. So that should encourage us that a church was established in Philippi in spite of this great resistance. We see God's power over all of his enemies to establish his church. But this is Paul writing in chapter 4 of Philippians to the church at Philippi. They're having some struggles. They're having some suffering. And he says that he wants them to follow the things which they had learned and received and heard and saw in him. So he's referencing this time that he had with them some nine years later. He says this, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It seems likely that many of these prisoners that we'll see today, or at least some of them, ended up being these fellow laborers, laborers whose names he believes are written in the book of life. He goes on now to instruct them. And again, this is later we'll see him pointing to himself as the example. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. See, Paul is speaking from experience. Going on. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So in today's text, we'll take some time to get back into the setting. By God's grace, maybe he'll transport us into the moment and we'll really be walking alongside with them as they go through this. And then we'll talk about this great phrase, but at midnight. And then we'll look at this great sudden earthquake. And then we'll see this hopeless jailer seeking his own death. And then we'll see Paul's love for the hopeless jailer. And then we'll see that the jailer is changed. The shaken shaken jailer is then seeking life. And then we'll see that the gospel is the power of God greater than any earthquake. And then we'll see the grateful jailer in his new faith seeking to love others and love God. Ending with rejoicing, just like this text begins, just like our lives in Christ should begin and end each day all the way to the end. So again, the setting. Let's go back to verses 19 through 24 and and ponder these things together. When her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, so again, he's cast out the demon from this possessed slave girl who'd been telling fortunes. And their profit is gone. They seized Paul, note the violence and the humility and the shame and the suffering. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. So the wealthy, the political leaders, and all the people have risen up against them. And then they had, and when they had laid many stripes on them, They threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he, that's the jailer, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So he was a faithful jailer. He was doing his job. So put yourself there in their shoes. 
They've been given this call from the man of Macedonia, come over here and help us. They've seen some initial gospel success. But now they've been publicly humiliated with their clothing stripped off. And they've been falsely accused with these exaggerated claims against them. And everyone is against them. They've been treated horribly, violently, and beaten with these rods. And there's no limit on the number of strikes, the number of blows that a Roman can give. There's no telling. And there's no limit to where they can hit them. They probably had open sores all over their bodies. And even the ones that were not open were certainly very painful for them. And we know from later that some of, at least some of them were open because they were washed. They're inside the inner prison. There's no hope of escape. They're fastened into the stocks and secured on the dirt, very likely dirt floor. And it's very likely that it had not been kept clean. And if you're in the stocks, you cannot go to the bathroom. So I want you to put yourselves into this situation. Consider your emotional state. Consider your physical state. How would you deal with this situation? How would you deal with this situation? Okay. So that's where they are. So let's see how Paul and Silas respond. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I think none of us would be surprised if it said, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were moaning and groaning in pain and complaining about their unjust treatment and cursing those who had harmed them. But where's their focus? See, that's the great contrast. This word but teaches us what we in our flesh know would be our response apart from the Holy Spirit. Despite their situation, in direct contrast to their circumstances. This is midnight. Why are they still awake? Well, maybe they couldn't sleep because of the pain. Maybe they couldn't sleep because of the discomfort of being in the stocks or the stench of their surroundings. Maybe there were cockroaches and rats crawling on their skin. That would not be a big surprise in a prison, I wouldn't think. But they're awake <clears throat> for whatever reason, and it's midnight. And certainly midnight, by metaphor, takes us deeper into the suffering that these two men are experiencing. And perhaps other members of their team remember, we talked about maybe Timothy is with them. So what are they doing? Well, they are praying and they are singing hymns to God. They are, first of all, note this, they are together in prayer to God. Perhaps one of the things they were most praising God about is that they had not been separated from one another. And they'd been left with a Christian friend with whom they could pray and praise God in the darkness, in the filth, in the stench, in the pain. How important it is to be together during times of hardship, brothers and sisters. To be isolated is to be near defeat. It was indeed an unforeseen kindness of God that the forces of evil neglected to separate these two men from one another. Little did they know that when two candles come together, it's a synergistic explosion of bright light. Now this was not an hour of prayer, but at midnight, the commentary says us, it was, tells us it was not in a house of prayer, but in a dungeon... Yet it was seasonable to pray, and the prayer was acceptable. And in the dark, so out of the depths, we may also cry unto God. No place, no time is amiss for prayer if the heart be lifted up to God. Those that are companions in suffering should join together in prayer. It is good that prayer is growing in our church. Is any afflicted? Let, let that one pray. No trouble, how grievous soever, 
should indispose us for prayer. Note that they're together in singing hymns to God. Their happy hearts overflowed with songs of rejoicing to God. Now, do you think that's where their hearts definitely started? They're human. They have a sinful flesh, right? It's very likely they did not feel like praying. Perhaps they had broken teeth or split lips or dried, parched tongues and mouths. But they chose to sing aloud to God. And I doubt they felt like it when they first started. What should be the heart of a child of God out of tune for this duty if a dungeon and a pair of stocks will not do it? They praised God that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name and that they were so wonderfully supported and borne up under their sufferings and felt divine consolations so sweet and so strong in their souls. You have to think that this peace of God that surpasses all understanding... Paul was probably tasting of it during this time. Nay, they not only praised God, but they sang praises to Him. In some psalm or hymn or spiritual song, either one of David's or some modern composition, or one of their own as the Spirit gave them utterance. As our rule is that the afflicted should pray, and therefore being in affliction, they prayed. So our rule is that the merry should sing psalms, and therefore being merry... In their affliction, Mary, after a godly sort, they sang psalms. And this is why we say in our baptismal charge over and over again that you teach your children how to look at all of the threats of the enemy of this world and smile and laugh in the midst of every enemy. It also teaches us how important it is to sing songs together in the light of day not in the midst of persecution. How many of you, let me ask you this, how long could you sing psalms and hymns from memory? Could you sing psalms and hymns all night long from memory? The more we sing now, the more we are prepared to sing then. Next, it appears as though they were alternating between prayers and hymns. Their minds overflowed with the word and with hymns. In this dark time, they were able to recall what they had learned, believed, prayed, and rejoiced. Now, they're not just singing, though. They're praying. It seems like they're going back and forth. How important are prayers and singing together in your life? When you look at your life and your experience, how often do songs and prayers come together. And certainly we have to think that their minds were overflowing with the Word. How how could they have prayed like they did and prayed biblically without having the Word in their mind as well? They were themselves hardy, wonderfully hardy, never were poor prisoners so truly cheerful, nor so far from laying their hard usage to heart. Let us consider what their case was Now they had felt the smart of the rods. The plowers had plowed upon their backs and made long furrows. The many stripes they had laid upon them were very sore. And one might have expected to hear them complaining of them, of the rawness and soreness of their backs and shoulders. Yet this was not all. They had reason to fear the axes next. Their master was first scourged and then crucified, and they might expect the same In the meantime, they were in the inner prison, their feet in the stocks, which some think not only held them, but hurt them. And yet at midnight, when they should have been trying, if possible, to get a little rest, they prayed and they sang praises to God. Now let's consider what the likely content was of their prayers and their singing in this moment. According to Paul's own words, which I'll read again, written to the Philippians nine years later, we can have educated speculation as to what was the content of their prayers and their songs. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So first of all, they were rejoicing. And it was not aimless. It was rejoicing in the Lord. They were lifting up words and songs to the Most High God, their Lord. Next. Their gentleness was very likely on display to these other prisoners. This word gentleness gets to patience and moderation and mildness. See, love is not provoked. Love is not provoked. Love is gentle. And that would have been a great sermon to those surrounding them. That as they prayed and sang, they had a mild and meek and gentle spirit towards those, towards those who had beaten them. And in that gentleness, almost for sure, we can know they would have prayed with compassion and tenderness for them to be saved from their sins. Obeying the command of Christ to pray for those who persecute you. Their gentleness would have been made known to all through this approach, this conquering approach. The nearness of God to them. The Lord is at hand, we are told. This is the most important part of praying with faith is to know that we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God and that we are never alone and that He will never leave us or forsake us. The deepest dungeon, the greatest number of beatings, the tightest stocks, nothing can take us out of His hand. And they would have heard those prayers and lifted those prayers to God surely as well. Knowing that as they are being beaten, He is holding them. And that they are not being beaten because He has taken their eye off of them or forgotten about them. But that they are being beaten because it is for their good and His glory and the advancement of His kingdom. They would have been rejecting anxiety. They would have been having many temptations about their own life about the church in Philippi, about Lydia and her family, about the young slave girl that had been saved, about the church in Philippi. They had had many reasons to worry. They would have rejected them because they would have known that they are to be anxious about nothing. And this great, long list of things and worries and troubles and sufferings in the midst of that moment, every single one of them would have been lifted up to God as a point of gratitude. Even as they're seeking relief, they're giving praise and thanks for this weakness, for these insults, for these hardships, and for these difficulties. This would have been the content of their prayers. Lifting up the needs of the situation to God. And then when they were done with that, when they were done with those prayers and songs on that topic, well, they would have just gone through focusing upon and meditating upon everything that's true and everything that's honorable and everything that's just and everything that's pure and everything that's lovely and everything that's virtuous and everything that's praiseworthy. And that probably would have given them the opportunity to pray for a week like this if God had not brought the sudden earthquake. Now, the prisoners were listening to them. Now imagine being a prisoner there. What a sight to behold. These men come in, they've been beaten, they've been stripped of their clothing, they, they've been badly wounded, they're humiliated, they're in the stocks, they're in the inner prison. These, these guys are in the depths of affliction. Yet Paul and Silas are praying and singing to God and all these glorious gospel realities are being brought forth from their lips knowing that Jesus Christ is on His throne. Praising the resurrected one in front of them. They would have been seeing this. I want us to note that simple prayer and praise like this in the midst of suffering brings the light of heaven before the eyes of men. Brings the light of heaven before the eyes of men. It is a great and powerful testimony. Next, 
I want you to note that they did not allow their surroundings to have them whisper their prayers and their hymns. I mean, you think about it. They've been rejected by everyone. At least they might kind of want to have it a little bit easy with the other prisoners. I mean, were the other prisoners in the stocks as well? Could the other prisoners get to them? They at least could have talked to them and mocked them. Nope. They sang and prayed loud enough for the prisoners to hear them crying out to God before the throne of grace. Commentary says, though they knew the prisoners would hear them, yet they sang aloud as those were not ashamed of their master nor of his service. Shall those that would sing psalms in their families plead in excuse for their omission of the duty that they are afraid their neighbors should hear them when those that sing profane songs roar them out and care not who hears them? Will you sing aloud in the public square in the midst of affliction, in the midst of threats? Will you sing aloud His truth and His glory in your life? Surely these prisoners would have heard the gospel preached as they heard these men pray and sing and rejoice and give thanks to God and it is very likely that the Lord God was already working in their hearts because they didn't run off. None of them. How we live in the midst of our suffering may very well prepare those around us to rightly interpret God's shaking movements in their lives and lead them to believe. It seems likely that at least some of these prisoners ended up being the core group of the first church of Philippi. We don't know that for sure, but we see evidences of likely at least seeds of faith in the lives of these curious prisoners. So God is moved. God is moved by the prayers of His people. When we trust Him in the midst of affliction and we cry out to our Heavenly Father before His throne of grace, brothers and sisters, He hears us and He is moved. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. So during their prayers and hymns, they were still praying. They hadn't stopped. Suddenly, a great earthquake shook the foundations of the prison. Now, the prison held fast. No walls came down on them. It was a powerful earthquake, but God held the place together. Revelation 8, 3-5 should come to mind. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. This should thrill every Christian soul that has ever encountered even the least bit of wickedness and evil and suffering in the earth. This should thrill the soul of every Christian who has struggled against their own sin and the apparent immovable mountain of ugliness within our own souls. God is moved when we cry out to Him, brothers and sisters. He hears us in Christ. And He is moved. Now we may not see the shakings like they saw the shakings, but we should expect on some day in our future that God will show us the connection between our prayers and His shakings. Pray with that certainty. Pray with that expectation. Pray towards that day when you get to see the fruits of your prayers of faith. So immediately, this very strange earthquake, which, which apparently only uh, works on foundations and chains and doors, <laughs> heretofore unreported type of earthquake, clearly this is a miraculous thing, this move of God is right there in the midst of this great earthquake. A lot of miracles are happening, not the least of which is the great shaking that's beginning the greater shaking, shaking that's beginning within the heart of the jailer. Now imagine being one of those prisoners. 
after hearing Paul and Silas sing and pray, you know, imagine maybe not being a believer, being a Roman pagan, listening to their surprising gratitude and hope and praise. Surely many of them had mocking hearts. Many of them had probably seen other prisoners say the same thing and get put to death. Who knows? And they're just kind of chuckling at these guys, like, okay. You'll find out where the real power is, okay, you and all your stripes. Now, we don't know that, but you have to assume some of them had that mentality. Very skeptical, at least, right? But then comes the earthquake and the freedom, and their chains fall off, and all the doors are open in the midst of these two men praying these prayers that we've discussed and singing with gladness to the King of Kings. While the prisoners were hearkening to the midnight devotions of Paul and Silas and perhaps laughing at them and making a jest of them, this earthquake would strike a terror upon them and convince them that those men were the favorites of heaven and such as God owned. See, that's what the Lord does. He makes people look at His people and say, Oh, this is real. So note that sometimes the Lord answers our prayers and praises while we are still praying, even blessing those who have heard our prayers at that very moment. Sometimes the Lord answers quickly. Sometimes the Lord answers later. And we know that He hears us in Christ. Now this has a great effect on the jailer. This one who had been a faithful jailer, who had done his duty. The keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. So he's lost all hope. He's lost all hope. You don't go towards suicide. Make the decision to take your own life unless you have lost all hope and you see that death is your best hope. Knowing that he would be put to death and perhaps cruelly and shamed, Because of the escaped prisoners, he takes out his own sword to kill himself. Now this is clearly a contrast between the response of the faithful Christian who knows God when they are in the midst of all deep distress and those who are outside of Christ when they experience the depths of distress. Once all hope is gone, apart from Christ, listen now, suicide becomes a very rational option. Let that sink in. If you've suffered enough in this life and you believe that you're just going to rot when you die and there's nothing that comes after, it is highly rational to conclude that death, a painless death, would be your best option. And this is why we have an increasing epidemic of suicide in the Western world. Because we have no hope. We have no sense of judgment after we die. And life is filled with suffering. Every day is suffering. And if you have a life filled with more suffering than pleasure, and you don't see an end to that, that's the path that people take. And and this should bring great compassion to our souls to understand that reality. And that there are people that we know and love who have not chosen that path because in some way they either believe their future has some hope. It's terrifying. So in his fright, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself to prevent a more terrible death and he expected one, a pompous, ignominious death, which he knew he was liable to for letting his prisoners escape and not looking better to them, says the commentary. And the extraordinarily strict charge which the magistrates gave him concerning Paul and Silas made him conclude they would be very severe upon him if they were gone. The philosophers generally allowed self-murder. Seneca prescribes it as the last remedy which those that are in distress may have recourse to. The Stoics, notwithstanding their pretended conquest of the passions, yielded thus far to them. And the Epicureans, who indulged the pleasure of sense to avoid its pains, chose rather to put an end to it. This jailer thought there was no harm in anticipating his own death. But listen now, Christianity proves itself to be of God by this, that it keeps us to the law of our creation, revives, enforces, and establishes it, obliges us to be just to our own lives 
and teaches us cheerfully to resign them to our graces, but courageously to hold them out against our corruptions. Suicide is murder of self and is clearly forbidden in Scripture. So how do Paul and these prisoners respond? They get up and run out and praise God for the deliverance? Think about it. Think about where Paul's focus is at this moment with all the options that are there before him. It's likely he'd been praying for this very jailer to be saved. As the jailer was sleeping in hopelessness on his way to suicide, Paul was awake in hope praying for his deliverance. This should, this should teach us. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. A bit of a side speculation, if you take a moment to look at this section, I think I spot a chiasm that puts this verse right at the center of focus for this particular text. And it makes sense because it shows us the example of Christ in Paul. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Christ's heart for those who were torturing him is on display here from Paul. No sign of bitterness. No sign of revenge. No Joab moments here in Paul's mind. Paul's love for his captor causes him to quickly and loudly call out to the jailer knowing, knowing that the jailer would be tempted to take his own life. It's implied he couldn't see him. Who knows if he screamed. So knowing the jailer's immediate concern, Paul tells him, we are all here. He speaks what that man needs to hear the most at that moment before he drives his sword into his own body. He wants to remove the dread of death from him most quickly. Do yourself no harm comes forth from the lips of Paul who had received much harm from this jailer. So note here, brothers and sisters, Christians... We'll always be praying and hoping the best for our persecutors quick to act for their good as God gives us opportunity. It's remarkable to consider that none of the prisoners ran away when they had the chance. Now this, I think, shows us the power of the sermon preached by their stripes and their songs to these prisoners. At least some of them were probably coming to faith or had already come to faith at that time. Perhaps some of them had been brought into prison after Paul had arrived in the city and had seen the deliverance of the slave girl, heard the gospel preached. The jailer needs not fear, though, because they are all there. It was strange that some of them did not slip away when the prison doors were opened and they were loosed from their bands, but their amazement held them fast, and being sensible it was by the prayers of Paul and Silas that they were loosed, they would not stir unless they, would not stir unless they stirred. And God showed His power in binding their spirits as much as in loosing their feet. Perhaps we can see this like a little church there in the prison that was coming to life. And this little church was willing to remain at risk for this man's soul. Note that those who mock at midnight may soon embrace Christ when their world is shaken. Never give up on the lost. Never give up on the lost. So this shaken jailer, he, 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 something has changed inside this man. He has a new way of seeing things. And he seeks life. He called for a light. He ran in and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer has been shaken out of his hopelessness by God's great miracle and Paul's great kindness toward him. Please note that combination. This man is no longer seeking death as his only hope. But now his soul has received heaven's great quaking. We're told he's trembling. There's no, certainly no accident there by the author. And he is seeking life now. Somehow, by God's grace, he's become aware of his own need to be saved. Somehow he's come to realize that he is the one who is in shackles. He is the one who is imprisoned. He is the one who is in the dungeon. He is the one who needs to be set free. 
The roles have totally reversed. And he's come to be aware of it. So I want us to note that when God is working in a man's soul, there will be minimal need for persuasion unto salvation. Have you ever done that before? Found yourself perhaps working too hard to persuade someone? When God's working in a man's soul, there will be minimal need for persuasion unto salvation, but rather we will encounter hungry souls asking how to be saved from their hopeless situation. You can't change the soil, but you can throw out the seeds. Those who are thoroughly convinced of sin and truly concerned about their salvation will surrender at discretion to Jesus Christ, will give Him a blank to write what He pleases, will be glad to have Christ upon His own terms, Christ upon any terms. Christ upon any terms. Is that your cry to Him? Next, we see that the gospel is the power of God and that it's very simple. We've seen the power of God in this earthquake, but now we see the power of God in its greatest demonstration. Shaking that which already exists is not near the miracle as bringing into existence that which did not exist, bringing life from death. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So please just note the simplicity of the gospel. You know, if you've got that 30-second elevator ride, this is a great scripture for you to use. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. This man will be saved, not might be saved, will be saved from his sin and, and from the kingdom of darkness by simply believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is so simple. We kind of want to complicate it. Um, and of course, we, we're told that he goes on to preach the word to them. So certainly there was explanations of each of those sections. Commentary says, We must admit the record that God hath given in his gospel concerning his son and assent to it as faithful and well worthy of all acceptance. We must approve the method God has taken of reconciling the world to himself by a mediator and accept of Christ as he is offered to us and give up ourselves to be ruled and taught and saved by Him. No other way of salvation than Christ. No other way of salvation than by Christ. And no other way of our being saved by Christ than by faith, believing in Him. And there's no danger of coming short if we take this way. For, if, for, for it is the way that God has appointed. And He is faithful. He is faithful. The one that has promised this to us, He is faithful. It is the gospel that is to be preached to every creature. And he that believes shall be saved. It's so important to see this glorious promise that God has given. If you believe in Him, you are saved. There's nothing that you must do. There's nothing that you can do. Don't overcomplicate it. Believe in Christ as He has given to us in the Scriptures, trusting in His death for you and His life for your future and eternal life. Now they go on to extend the salvation to His household and to speak the word to the jailer and His entire household. So note again, like with Lydia, we're told that households are saved. And when they would speak to these people in the house, certainly they would describe Christ's atoning death upon the cross for this man's sin and teach him about the free grace of God to him and his household. They would teach him what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Note the extension of this to his family, we are told by the commentary. Thou shalt be saved and thy house. That is... God will be in Christ a God to thee and to thy seed as he was to Abraham. Believe and salvation shall come to the, thy house as in Luke 19. Those of thy house that are infants shall be admitted into the visible church with thee and thereby put into a fair way for salvation. Those that are grown up shall have the means of salvation brought to them and be they ever so many, let them believe in Jesus Christ and they shall be saved. They are all welcome to Christ. 
upon the same terms. And we need to really stop a moment and, and let this sink in. God saves households. He does not just save individuals. And if there's a single Christian in that household, particularly mother or father, then we see God's hand upon that entire household. The blood on the doorposts brought safety to all who were in. And the angel of death could touch none of them. And in our individualistic world, and the over-focus on individualistic salvation, we can miss the covenantal household nature. There'll be a sermon on this after we get through with the sections on Philippi. So what happens when someone is born again? We see here that joy is contagious. We see that rejoicing spreads. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So this jailer's new faith is quickly on display. It says the same hour of the night. He doesn't say, whew, I'm sure you're tired, you've been beaten, let's, let's go to sleep, we'll, we'll pick this up in the morning. <laughs> the same hour. So immediately he and all his family were baptized. He did not delay in this first act of obedience for adult converts. Luke doth again commend the godly zeal of the keeper, that he did consecrate all his whole house to the Lord, wherein doth also appear the grace of God, in that he brought all his whole family into a godly consent. We must also note the notable exchange. He was of late about to murder himself because he thought that Paul and the rest were escaped. But now laying aside all fear, he bringeth them home so that we see how faith does animate and encourage those to behave themselves stoutly who before had no heart. And surely when we droop through fear and doubtfulness, there is no better matter of boldness than to be able to cast all our cares into God's bosom. And no danger may, that no danger may terrify us from doing our duty, whilst that we look for an end at God's hand, such as he shall see to be most profitable. So we just do our duty. And we do not give way to fear. So he was baptized. He and his whole household, and his whole household believed. And not only was he washed with water, but he washed Paul and Silas. He washed their wounds. Note here how faith provokes tenderness towards others, especially towards the ones we have harmed in our sin. We should mend the wounds that we have delivered to others. Note also, especially toward our siblings in Christ, whom we have harmed. Note also, especially towards our fathers in the faith, whom we have harmed. There's much to learn here from the washing of these wounds by this brand new Christian. And he didn't just wash their wounds outside, or still at the prison. Another message of hospitality for our church. Like Lydia showed us before. He brought them into his home. Brothers and sisters, he brought them into his home. He'd seen what was done to these men. He had seen that the wealthy and the powerful and the multitudes hated them and wanted them dead or gone. And he took them in. To his own. May this teach us. Note here how hospitality flows from faith. No more could his hands not tend the wounds than his hands not open the doors to the home. And, and, and no more could his hands not also put a table full of food there before them. He brought them into his house, bade them welcome to the best room he had, and prepared his best bed for them. Now nothing was thought good enough for them as before nothing had been thought bad enough. He shared a fellowship meal with them. So much to learn here. He didn't just wash their wounds. He didn't just wash their wounds and bring them into his home. He, he ate with them. He gave them his food. And they shared his food with him. They ate it. Even though who knows, it might have been offered to demons. And that's a whole other point that we could talk about. But they ate the food. And clearly, no one said, hey, this food's been offered to demons. 
So they ate it. They enjoyed it with them. Another example of how the wall between Jew and Gentile had been brought down. They had spoken to this jailer of the word of the Lord. They had broken the bread of life to him and his family. And he, having reaped so plentifully of their spiritual things, he thought it was but reasonable that they should reap of his carnal things. What have we houses and tables for, brothers and sisters, but as we have opportunity to serve God and his people with them? If his gold and silver had been at hand, perhaps he would have given, given all of that to them as well. Do you see the flow of this man's life, the overflow of gratitude from this jailer? The same we saw from Lydia. Brothers and sisters, little ones especially, question yourselves. Do you have this kind of gratitude in your heart towards God that overflows in a desire to serve others with your life? Or are you focused on yourself? We can all learn from this. Oh, may God grant us to be like this jailer, to be like Lydia. And he rejoiced in the Lord because he and his household had been saved. And that is always our focal point of rejoicing, is in the salvation that has been provided for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we ever get our focus off of Christ and Him crucified and preaching Him crucified to the world, then we, and we start rejoicing in other things, and not rejoicing in Him, we're, we're drifting. We're steering away. And so even here at the end, He's not rejoicing that He, was, he didn't kill Himself. He's not rejoicing that He's got all these other things going on. Those things made Him happy. He's rejoicing. His strength is in worshiping God. And that is ours as well. He signified His joy to all about Him. Out of the abundance of the joy in his heart, his mouth spoke to the glory of God and their encouragement who believed in God too. Those who have themselves tasted the comforts of salvation should do what they can to bring others also to the taste of them. One cheerful Christian should make many. And that's what we see happening in this text. So here, the gospel is taking root. And we see how the gospel takes root in Europe. We see what God chose to do to put a stake in the ground and bring the gospel and make a beachhead there in Philippi. Some questions for us to consider. And I hope you will think about these things personally in your own life. What threats and sufferings tempt you to remain silent or inactive for the gospel? For you and your life. Next, is joy in Christ the great strength of your soul so that no one can scare you away from love? Or will you give in to fear when you are threatened? Think about when you've been persecuted for the gospel. Did you complain? Did you get discouraged? Did you focus upon yourself? Did you focus upon the injustice? Did you meditate upon those things? Or did you give thanks and rejoice? How did you respond to persecution? Next. Do you know that the lost are watching you? They'll watch how you will act and respond to mistreatment? They will, act, they will see how you will respond to the threats of this world. They will watch and see what you really love the most. It's very convicting for all of us. I think all of us can admit that we fail in this way. And that through a sermon like this, we would pray that God would make us more faithful to not give way to threats. Which just means loving things other than God. Idolatry in our souls makes us vulnerable to the threats. Next. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you understand the heart of your Heavenly Father towards you? Do you see that your prayers to Him as His beloved child in Christ are like a, a pleasing aroma before Him? 
especially in the midst of you being able to express faith, to live the life of Christ in the midst of deep suffering and pain. This moves the heart of our Father in Heaven. This should, be, this should make any child of God so happy to know how tender His heart is towards us when we pray to Him anytime, but especially in the midst of persecution. Because this is where we are filling up what's lacking in the suffering of our Savior. We are His body. When we suffer in faith towards Christ, God sees the suffering of His Son in you and me. Not just your suffering. It's not your suffering. Your suffering. But it's your suffering because you're joining into the fellowship of His suffering. You're taking up your cross and following Him. Do you maintain the expectation that God will shake this world and bring great salvation to many? Do you maintain that expectation in your life? And do you do this even in response and that God will do this even in response to your prayer and your praises during suffering? Not only that He will do it, but that He gives you a part in it. I think of all the people who died at home with this coronavirus illness. The family members that lost family members unnecessarily. I think of the shameful propaganda and corruption. I think of the world that we live in. I think of many things. I'm sure you could think of things as well. Even if we are not personally suffering, we can enter in to the suffering of this world. And we can cry out to God. Next, what do you think is the biggest miracle in this story? I think many of us would be tempted to look at the shaking foundations and the shackles falling off and the doors all opening. I don't know. I think it was a much bigger, bigger miracle that all of those prisoners didn't leave. And I think the biggest miracle of all is the salvation of this jailer's soul. We have to learn to think that way and realize what a great miracle it is when one soul is saved from sin by God. It's called a new creation. So if you marvel at the first creation in six days, marvel at each new creation that God brings forth when He shines the light of His glory into the soul of each new believer. Next, do you realize the simplicity of the gospel and that it is the power of God? That when you speak, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household that it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And that you have the opportunity to speak such almighty words. Have great faith in God's Word. Have great faith in the power of God that, that you get to speak. That you have believed. Next. I hope you see that households are baptized, not just individuals. We'll talk more about that later. Next. So do you see these fruits of faith in your life? Immediate obedience or delayed? Compassion or closing off your mind? Service or good intentions? Fellowship with Christians or the status quo? Growing in relationships through hospitality or more days in the rut? And do you rejoice in your salvation? Is your life a life of rejoicing in the salvation that is yours? Or are you frequently distracted and thinking of other things and trying to drink from other fountains. 
I'll end this sermon with Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, how we praise You, Lord, that You are always with us, that You are our shield and our strength, You are our high tower, and that no harm can come to us that does not first come from your eternal decrees and your heart of love towards us, your children, and that all of your enemies are your servants to do your bidding. Lord, we rejoice that the kingdom of evil and darkness and sin is being shaken and removed and that your kingdom from Mount Zion is firm and established and cannot be shaken and that we have been brought into this kingdom by your invincible power through faith in Christ, who lives and reigns forever, and in whose name we pray.